all about the heart. May I introduce my colleague, Canon J. Johnson. Great. Good, af good afternoon. Are we on? Oh, yeah. Good afternoon. He's very good, isn't he? He's got a lot of potential, hasn't he? He just got to you know, keep on practicing. Uh, you know, most church leaders uh, are like GPs. And uh, a GP has to know a little about a lot, yeah? Um, but uh, I'm an obstetrician. That's my speciality. So, you know, I'm a bit like a consultant obstetrician. My, it's, I deal with obstetrics. I, I deal with new birth. That's what I'm engaging in all the time. That's what Tim does. He's an obstetrician. Uh, the sad thing is today that a lot of... GPs no longer know how to practice obstetrics. It's not a criticism, it's an observation. Because they're having to deal with so many other things in their portfolio, obstetrics isn't, it's not that it's not important. They're swamped by other things. And there's a, there's a challenge for GPs to learn how to do obstetrics again. <laughs> And there's also, let's call the obstetricians in to help us. Uh, so much of evangelism today has become a process. You know, it's like, oh, if you're interested in anything, you, you have to go and do a course. <laughs> and we've lost the crisis. Uh, when I first started 30 years ago, there were more obstetricians practicing than there are today. Um, and I just want to encourage you and commend my good friend Tim to you. He, he's, you know, he's still, um, family services are what an incredible opportunity to be able to convey and articulate good news uh, to children. And the adults are there because of the children. So the adults aren't really listening, but they're listening more intently than the children. <laughs> You know, we don't seize those opportunities as well as we could. Or, or guest services, or a service that is geared for the unchurched to come, or, or carol services, or uh, alpha launch dinners, or things like that. Tim has uh, a few slots left from now till Christmas. If you're interested in a family service, in a guest service, in an alpha launch, in a carol service, then you can speak to him um, at lunchtime. I just want to mention a couple of uh, resources to you. Can you hold those? Uh, you've all got one of these, haven't you? Yeah. Now, I, I've been going to churches up and down the country, up, down, up, down, up, down, uh, north, south, east, west, for 30 years. And uh, I'll often say to the church leader, the minister, the pastor, the vicar, uh, now, for those people that would like to receive Christ or those people that need to reinforce their faith, uh, what do you have to give to them? And they, they look at me as though I'm an alien that has just landed from another planet. And they say, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, um, can we give them something uh, at the end of the service? And uh, I think it would be true to say that out of every hundred times I've asked that question, 99 churches have absolutely nothing. That, that is a fact. Nothing to give to people. Um, you know, so we're, we're not ready and prepared, are we? So we talk about mission, we talk about evangelism, we talk about revival, but actually we're not even ready for one person to come and join our church, let alone thousands to come and join our church. Yeah. And 
I, this is a little booklet, Making the Connection. Okay, there are three versions of this, Making the Connection for 10 months of the year. One of them is called Making the Christmas Connection for December, and one's called Making the Easter Connection. Now, if you have nothing, use this until you write your own. And if yours be- is better than mine, can you show it to me? <laughs> no, it doesn't, ma- it doesn't matter which one you use. The point is, have something to be able to give to people to help them on their journey, help them on their faith. Have you received Christ? I'd like to give you a little booklet to reinforce what you've just done. You know, uh, one pound, one pound. You can buy uh, a coffee at Starbucks is three pounds. You can get three of these. And if you bolt buy them, you get them even cheaper. You know, so that's that. Okay, when people say, hey, um, I'm interested in Jesus, what do you give them? Go on. What would you give somebody who came to your church says, I'm interested in Jesus and I want to find out more? What would you do next? Come on, quick. A prayer. A prayer. They want to know about Jesus. What are you going to do? Say a prayer. All right. I'm glad I don't, I hope I don't come to your church. <laughs> give them your eternal life. All right. All right. We'll have the prayer. We'll have the prayer plus, plus... Game of life. Give them a what? A book? What, what would you give them? Yours. No, no, no. What would you... <laughs> you let the cat out of the bag. No, listen, listen. I'm teasing you. I'm teasing you. Of course we're going to pray. Of course we're going to pray for people interested in Jesus. But it's really interesting, isn't it, that, that we do have a lot of people who are interested and intrigued in Jesus, and yet the church has, has absolutely nothing to give them. It probably says to them, oh, you need to join a course. It's called Alpha, which is fantastic. But very little else. Okay, so I, I did write a book on Jesus. It's called The Life. And this book, I wrote this book. There's, there's one or two books about Jesus around, but the, I've probably read most of them, and they've all been written for people who are Christians. They actually haven't been written for somebody who isn't a Christian. So I wrote this for somebody who's not a Christian to explain who Jesus was, what are the facts, what's the history, what did he say, what did he do, how do we know he did it, how do we know the evidence of the resurrection, how do we know he's alive today, and how can I know him in a totally de-jargonized way. Okay? And, and just be able to say, hey, we'd like to give you this book. And, and have a read, and maybe we'll have a coffee, and you can tell me what you think. This may not be the answer, but it could help them on the journey. Help them on the journey. I mean, that's just four pounds, that one. Or if you bolt by them, you can get them, you know, even cheaper. Right, Christmas. Uh, Christmas for me for 30 years has been one of the biggest things in what we do in our ministry. The moment I, in fact, we were here two years ago, weren't we? Two years ago here, I gave, I got to the end. I said, if you'd like to become a follower of Jesus, come to the front. The first person to come was the mayor. The mayor came to the front, first person, standing here at the front to receive Christ, plus how many others? Loads. It was here, you know, the, the, preaching works. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> it, but it does, it actually works, right? Um, here's this book, Proclaiming Christmas. In here are 40 Christmas sermons. 
I, basically, all I did was I rang up my friends and I said, hey guys, can you give me your best Christmas sermon? I want to put it in a book. I'll edit it. I've got them from Philip Yancey, N.T. Wright, R.T. Kendall, Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury. I've got, them, I've got them from everybody. 40 different sermons. When I finished preaching Christmas last December, I opened a Christmas file in January for this Christmas. I'm collecting already. I'm planning already. So if you want ideas, uh, I'm releasing two more, one called Proclaiming Hope on Funeral Sermons and one Proclaiming Marriage uh, Wedding Sermons. We tried to interview 1,500 churches. We got 1,017 replies, which is great because we needed 1,000 to verify the data. One of the questions on our questionnaire was, have you in the last 10 years trained and equipped your church in how to evangelize. That does not mean you told them to, but you trained and equipped them to. Okay, out of 1,017 churches, how many do you think said yes? Random guess? 20. 20? Have we got any optimists here? No. You're all, you're all realists. Okay, right. Okay, 36. 36 churches said this is, by the way, these are 1,017, what you might call evangelical, Pentecostal, charismatic type churches. You know, the, these are churches that you would think are mission-minded, but only 36 of them had, had trained or equipped their church in how to evangelize. I cannot get my head around that. When my wife and I wanted our kids to learn the piano, we got them a piano teacher and got them lessons. When my kids wanted to learn to drive, we got them driving lessons. We're not very, very good at evangelism. Why on earth aren't we training people to do it? I've written a course. <laughs> it's called Breaking News. Now, yeah, there aren't that many courses, actually. I've actually studied all the available courses on evangelism that there are. There's, there's one or two, probably, that are really good, but they're American, and therefore they're disqualified. Because <laughs> they're not quite... They don't quite capture the British mindset, right? Okay, so here's this one. If you know of a better course, please let me know which one it is. Oh, great. And if it's better than this, I'll bin it. I'm happy to bin it. I really, because I'm not interested in this cause. Yeah, yeah. I'm interested in reaching the lost. And that's what I'll be talking about in my session later. Right. Six sessions in here. Uh, Tim's been teaching this course, going around the country, all over, teaching, training churches. But you don't have to have Tim say it. You can do it yourself. And the first thing I would suggest to you is buy one sample at lunchtime. I mean, this is five pounds. I mean, that's all it is. Buy one sample, have a look at it, and then say to yourself, hey, I'm going to get all my staff to do it once a week. My staff to do it. Notice what I said. I'm going to get all my staff to do it once a week, every week for six weeks, so that we can think about this again and become practitioners, and then get your whole church to do it. But if you need somebody to come and do it for you, Tim said, that's what he does. He's been, that's what he's been doing for three years on our team. So a few little plugs. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. Now, I, I remember watching the God Channel and seeing this bloke who looked like a doorman 
because he was a big fella, because I used to be a doorman, I used to be in the commandos, and when you get out, you haven't got any other qualities, so you go on the door. And I thought, he looks like a bloke, I reckon he looks like one of the lads, you know, you big ass. I say this with love and respect and honour. And they said, no, that's this amazing guy's got a healing ministry. And I had the privilege when I was at Wycliffe in Oxford studying theology, we took a team of clergy up to uh, this church in Birmingham. And it was when Tony Campola was there. And I saw this, this big guy kissing people tenderly in a godly way who was sick and praying for them and loving them like I think Jesus would do. And I went away shocked because I had not seen that kind of ministry, someone that actually was broken with the broken and cared for them. And our next speaker is just about to come up. He's, um, well... What can I say? He's a senior pastor at Renewal Christian Centre in Solihull. He preaches regularly at the church and visitors are welcome. I mean, it's a safe place. I've seen it. I've been there. He's a writer, broadcaster and pastor. And he travels all over the globe. His real heart is for social transformation, to go to the deprived areas of the world. And I've seen that. He works with orphans, as many of us do, but he works with them. He goes amongst them, disabled children, people whose lives have been devastated by disaster. And uh, where he lives, they call their, their church the fourth emergency service. And that is a real honor. So I love us to welcome the, the Right Reverend Bishop David Carr. Well, I was at um, a big, big conference and they came up and cameras were there. They read out to spiel about me, and then they and they and they said to welcome him, and I and I remained in my seat. And they tried again, um, let's welcome him, and I stayed in my seat. And they panicked with the cameras. When I got there, I said, "It's all right." I said, "You know, normally hear this, didn't you, Dad?" And I just wanted to understand how good it was. <laughs> <laughs> it was like sitting at your funeral because you become you become famous at your funeral, don't you? And you're infamous all through your life. <laughs> What an outstanding presentation we had about our worship. Now comes our difficulty, because how does that filter into us? Now I can speak in this way because I came from a background of total disaster. Born in 1945, the word dyslexia wasn't invented. There's a bit of base on this. And so consequently, I was born just before the end of the war. Uh, I was a twin, the other died at birth. And I'm not into sort of overt psychology, but psychology is part of who we are. In fact, it's interesting that I had a loneliness and inner loneliness. Two older brothers, one 12 years older than me, who became very successful chief nursing officer of Newcastle, 18 hospitals, then became a, a minister. The other one was an architect and he became a minister. His son's an architect who's just become an Anglican vicar. And um, so I was under pressure of two very intelligent brothers. And the, uh, the pressure was enormous because I couldn't read and write until I was 18. I was completely illiterate. With five major psychological phobias. I mean, phobias that I didn't dis- dislike things, I used to hyperventilate. 
So, for instance, if I was exposed to darkness, I, I couldn't breathe. So I used to sleep until I was 16 with the light on all night. If I was near water, I would, I would again. So I would bath with water up to my knee, never shower, never swim. I couldn't be near any animals. I know it sounds laughable, the only animals I coped with as a kid was two goldfish. If you're walking down the road and you see a cat or a dog and you freeze, I couldn't cope with people. As a child, I used to hide. I used to hide if people came. I used to hide behind the potting shed. I used to hide under the table. We'd never go to any parties. We'd never go anywhere. Acutely shy, very, very frightened of people. And I was frightened of doctors or dentists. I didn't have dental treatment of any consequence till I was 28. And I used to cry myself to sleep wishing I was dead. That's pretty severe. Today I'd be under a child psychologist, I'd be on the spectrum. And, and I'd have all the attention, being dis dyslexic, I'd have been given a computer. I was the only child in the school that was never allowed to do GCSEs. I was sent home for a fortnight saying it would waste my time and the school. And it was only six months before I left school that a, doctor a new teacher came. You know, you always remember your good and your bad teachers. Yeah. Those who are average, you can't remember them. But the bad ones, you'll remember them until they die. And you'll remember the good ones till you die. <coughs> Mr. Cunningham. He did a, <coughs> an oral <coughs> quiz. <coughs> car. Correct. Car. Correct. Came to us and we said, Car, how can you be correct when you can't read and write when you're thick? Because that's what I was called. I was beaten up by the teachers all the time, being stupid, insolent, lazy. Ten years in school was like prison. He said, you're not stupid. For some reason, you can't read and write. Don't know why that is. There's no time to do it. I'll teach you to write your name and address before you leave school. I left school without any other education at all. Angry and frightened. And yes, I did become a bouncer. Sorting out drug addicts. So I got my nose broken, beaten up by four drug addicts one night. Very angry. Even though I'd grown up in church and made a profession of seven, none of it was my own. So yes, I do have empathy for the sick. Especially those with mental illness. Because they're going through hell. Because the church doesn't know how to handle them. See, the problem is if you've got any social disorder... The church, according to its theology, is either, where's your belief? Where's your faith? Come out, you foul spirit. Worst thing you can ever do in church is say you hear voices. My God, that's, that's <laughs> Ghostbusters Anonymous, that is. You go to a charismatic church, it's the bucket and the Kleenex immediately. <laughs> So I tell people with mental illness, never mention you hear voices. If you hear the voices, whistle. Because we're still back into pointed hat and cats. I've been, I've been dealt with a demonic for 15 years. In fact, all the Anglican diocese used to send people to me. I've dealt with heavy-duty Satanists. I want to tell you that 90% of this population have never seen a demon. But the more charismatic you are, the more demons you've got. 
A demon a day helps you work, rest and play. <laughs> I know a lot of demons who are Christian possessed. Do you know that? <laughs> That's such a good quote. I've got to use that. <laughs> That's great. I'm not going to quote. I'm not going to quote. Have you met them as well, have you? <laughs> it's true, I've met them. They sit there and somebody's going, Amen, brother, Amen, brother. <laughs> <laughs> Come out and be like you're supposed to be horrible. Come out. <laughs> you're wrecking my time here. You realise that. <laughs> you like that, like that. <laughs> spirit of prosperity coming to it. <laughs> and it's only when I had a personal experience of the Holy Spirit to transform my life. Within two years I could learn to read by reading the Bible, nobody taught me, and in five years I could do maths in my head, and within ten years I was in the top 300 financial advisors in the world. I used to lecture all over the world, guest of honour on the Orient Express. I used to speak at the Montreux Festival Hall, Monte Carlo, Bermuda. God led me into football and I managed the 700 leading footballers in the world, in the country. Daily expressed in my life story. I'd like to say that when I got filled with the Holy Spirit, those, all those phobias went, but I had to confront every single one. Because sometimes our theology asks God to take away that which we have to confront. I had to confront every one of those fears. I had to learn to swim. I had to stroke a dog. I had to turn the light off. I had to go and have all my teeth reconstructed over five operations. I had to go to the hospital and have an operation. I had to stand and talk to people and look at them eyeball to eyeball, or I could never have spoken to thousands. Didn't just wake up one day and I think, hi everybody, I can speak to you. Ooh, let's sleep in the dark. Now if I fall asleep with the light on, I can't fully sleep. I have to turn the light off and be in total darkness. Because he's my light. When we've got this relationship right, <coughs> the next big one is this one. Now the NIV, the, the version which is used by a lot, and it's a very nice one, you've got all the versions, but it does miss out some key verses. It doesn't say what the New King James or the King James Version would say, when somebody came to Jesus and said, um, basically, what do I do to be secure? What do I do to really have the assurance of God? And Jesus said to him, put your hand up in a meeting. Right. But there's no meeting. No, I've not invented them yet, but when I do, put your hand up in a meeting. <laughs> Especially when the band is playing. Or the quiet. All right, he said. No, he didn't say that, did he? He said, I tell you what, make sure you've been baptized and gone through confirmation. Make sure the bishop puts his hands on you and you will receive the Holy Spirit. No, he hadn't done that because they hadn't invented bishops then. 
Go on an alpha course, he said. No, no, Jesus said something which we sometimes ignore. Jesus often answered a question by asking one. Why does Jesus do that? Because it's very, it's very annoying. It's because God knows the answer often is in us, but we need to confess it. What is the greatest commandment, he said? Being a religious man, he knew it. And of course, the NIV doesn't say this, but the King James Version does, and the New King James. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with your mind, body, soul, and spirit. NIV only has three of those. And the reason why I think it's important to have four, because four is the number of man. In the numeracy of God, four is the number of man. It's four seasons. There can only be a combination of four. Father, mother, son, daughter. Four is the number of man. Three is the number of God. Jesus was God-man, seven. You shall love the Lord your God with all your mind, body, soul, and spirit. Yes. And you will love yourself. Yes. You will love your neighbor. Yes. You will love those who despitefully use you. Yes. You will love your enemy. So love didn't stop with the upward. It came to the inward. And then had it become outward. And we who glow in the dark through the Holy Spirit. (laughs) The question must be. As we've heard the first session. How is our upward love. But can I challenge us by asking, and this is surely what the order is trying to achieve, do we love ourselves? Because some of us come from a theological viewpoint that we were told, God first, others next, self last. Theologically inept. How can you love your wife if you've got no self-worth? How can you love your children if you were brought up with no love? See, greater love is no man than this, and he lays his life down for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. And so we have people in the world who lack love and self-worth coming to the church, and they find people who can sing lively songs with no love and no self-worth. And how do I know that? Because if I'm taking a rally, and I want to get an audience at the front... All I've got to say is, friends, I just want to ask you, is anybody bruised here today? Anybody feeling really genuinely unloved? Anybody feeling abused? Come now. I say, oh, come to the front every week. Every church, every denomination, because something has gone wrong in our theology. See, 
I was in Australia. You have to go to Australia, don't you, Jane John? It's over on your CV. When I was in Australia, <laughs> go to A, mate. And some of us have been to New Zealand as well, haven't we? The difference between New Zealand and Australia, Australia say good eye, mate, but the New Zealanders say good eye. <laughs> There's no mates in New Zealand. <laughs> but as I'm an early riser, I woke up just as the sun was rising. And I heard a maiden singing. In the valley below. In the valley below. <laughs> She said, oh, don't deceive me. Oh, never leave me. I I don't even know her. (laughs) It's true. I was a visitor. (laughs) Silly girl, I thought. (coughs) So I never listened to maidens in Australia. But seriously, she never sang, but it was rising. Now, what you've got to realise is, before I had an education... It was marvellous how I did all my education from 18 onwards, you know. <coughs> but when I first got saved, I just to speak to God. Sometimes our, our, our simplicity is overtaken by our, our intelligence. So I used to speak to God and he used to speak back to me. And I know God comes from Birmingham because he used to say to me, Oh, you're right. <laughs> I used to say, I'm all right. He used to say, great. When John Centimu became, let me tell you, when John Centimu became Bishop of Birmingham, we became, for some stupid thing, friends. Sometimes later, he made me, only he could do this, he made me an honorary bishop of the Church of England, told everybody, made me wear the purple, everything else, before I was even a bishop. Just because he, he told everybody, and they all bowed, and, okay, Archbishop, he <laughs> But he came to Birmingham, and, and he decided to walk around the whole diocese with his suffragan bishop. So he said, would you like to join me? I said, oh, thank you very much indeed. Because you're an honorary bishop. Thank you very much, Jenny. And I said to him, um, can you speak Birmingham? And he said, what do you mean? <laughs> I said, well, John, I said, we have our own language here. I said, there's only about five words in the Birmingham language. <laughs> But a very lazy part of the world. I said, and it's the way you say it like Chinese, the same word means six or seven things the way you express it. So I said, we're going to a church in the moment where, the, where the, we're walking there. I said, the vicar is so brummy. It's unbelievable. And you've got to know if you're going to be culturally relevant or whatever you want to use. You've got to interact. We've got a long way till we get there. So he's walking with his ski sticks. <laughs> and he's still only up to my knees and he's walking to... <laughs> So I said, John, this is how you interact with Birmingham. He'll walk up the vicar with his people to greet us, and he'll say, all right, all right, Dave, all right, Bishop, you're right. And you'll answer, I wasn't all right, but I'm all right now. <laughs> and he'll go, great. <laughs> and he said to me, you're joking. I said, no, no. So I'm teaching him, and he's a good learner. So, so by the time we get in there, he's going, all right, I'm all right, great. All right, all right. <laughs> And as if I had orchestrated, the vicar comes up and says, all right, Dave, all right, Bishop, you're right. <laughs> and John said, well, I wasn't all right, but I'm all right now. <laughs> and the vicar said, great. <laughs> so what you don't know, Jay John, when you came to Birmingham, I'm sitting on the front row with him, and he went to me, do you think he's all right? <laughs> 
I said, I do think he's all right. He said, great. <laughs> so every time he phones me now on my answer phone, I hear, I'm all right. <laughs> so when he went to York, I said, do you know how to speak Yorkshire? <laughs> he said, no. I said, this is what you say. Happen I do, happen I don't, trouble at mill. <laughs> I said, say that again. I said, happen I do, happen I don't, happen I will, happen I won't, trouble at mill. <laughs> so he'd been up there, and I went there, prayed for him at his, at his installation there, and he phoned me the next day, eh, happen I do, happen I don't, happen I will, happen I won't. <laughs> Just in case you wonder what bishops say, that's our conversation. <laughs> Jesus said, <coughs> you have said wisely, a Christian is someone who loves God with all their mind, body, soul and spirit. So if we're seeking well-being, why are we asking people to ask Jesus into their heart? Why aren't we teaching the people and asking the people to surrender the whole of their being? Yeah. See, because I was in such a mess, yeah. I didn't just need a spiritual rebirth, I needed a mental repentance. Mm. I needed a, my soulishness to be redeemed. And I needed my physical body to be brought under the sanctification of his spirit. Because Paul says, I beat my body into submission. I make it a disciple of my heart. And we quit after a quarter. Bless God, he's given his heart to Jesus. And then the pastor has to spend many years trying to get a dysfunctional Christian to think like Christ because his mind has not been renewed. By the renewing of your mind, by the washing of the word. Now repentance means to change the way we think. It's nothing to do with our spirit. It's a cognitive desire to bring our mind and the thought patterns into line with Christ. So there has to be an intellectual changing and perspective of our thought in God when we're in Christ. There has to be, come let us reason together though my sins be as scarlet. It's a process. So the evangelist rightfully brings us to the birth Gynecology, birth. But surely then, our well-being has got to be the onward journey. See, the idea of the order is to bring the old and the new together. Now, we must learn from our monastic brothers. We who have come from an evangelical charismatic background must not jettison over 1,500 years of history. When we read the Celtic brothers and sisters who were very rough and ready, when we read about Hild, and we read of Cuthbert and Aidan, and we see the miracles they were recorded of doing, far more than any television evangelist today could ever hope for. I mean, reconstructed miracles. What about Hild? Because in the Celts, the women and the men function at the same level. An abyss could be over a bishop. A bishop was always under an abbot in those days. Until the Catholic Church came in. How about Hild, who was having one of the conventions? And a woman came in with a baby and she said, Bishop Ben is the father of my child. And Bishop Ben went red and he said, you know, Sister Hild, I, I do not know this woman. 
And Hill says to this woman, are you saying categorically that this man fathered your child? She said, I am. She said, I'm going to ask you under the power of the Holy Spirit to answer the Holy Spirit now. Is that man the father of your child? She said, yes. And a tumor grew into her mouth so big that she started to choke. She turned to the baby and said, I command you to tell me your father. The baby spoke and said, the ruffian who lives on the edge of the village. Seen that on television lately? <laughs> they came to Aden and said to him, that island nobody can live off of the coast there in Northumberland because it's demonic. He went and prayed for two solid years. Not a quick, quick, get the cameras here, let's go today. Two years. Not every day. But waited. Two years later, God said, there's the time. He rode across, walked around the island, set it free so you can live there now. What can we learn from them? What have we thrown away for the instant religion like we do with food? What can we teach them of the flow of the Spirit? Because every age has something to teach. Bringing the old and the new, and as Smith Wigglesworth said, when the word and the spirit come together and the old and the new come together, there's going to be an explosion, there's going to be an implosion. Do you know what Jesus said? Because in that morning when the sun was rising, Jesus said to me this, the house does not wait for another two hours. So read the book of Matthew, but only read the red bits. I want you to learn my words. And so I read those, and at the end of Matthew, I started to weep in my bed. And the Lord said to me, why are you weeping? I said, because Lord, I don't live these words. And I don't preach these words. And of course, the variety of our preaching is good. We preach on the Old Testament, which is there. We preach on Abraham. And if you're in the faith movement, you preach a lot on Father Abraham. If you're, if you're a full-blooded Protestant, you preach on Paul. And if you're a full-blooded Catholic, you preach on Peter. But you know what the Bible says? There are two little apostles sitting on the wall. One named Peter... One named Paul. Fly away, Peter. Fly away, Paul. Because Paul says, I preach Christ and him crucified. And these people are good to preach. But folks, Paul's word is nowhere near as important as Christ. And let me ask you something. Have you ever read the words of Christ? I read them for two years after that day. Mm. I didn't make a doctrine out of it. I just spent two years just reading the red bits. Mm. It transformed my life. They were very difficult to read because Jesus wasn't always nice. No. Good master, why do you call me good? Only God's good. Oh, sorry, I spoke. <laughs> it wouldn't take flattery. Why do you call me good? Mm. Only God's good. Are you calling me God? You see, by reading his words for two years, it brought a healing inside me. It is well with my soul.
I knew exactly now, without any nervousness, what he thought of me, what I thought of him, and what I thought of others. It doesn't really matter what other people think of me, it's what he thinks of me. It transformed my life. And then it transformed listening to sermons. Because when I heard people say, and Jesus said, I thought it didn't. Never said that. You've taken him out of context, like they do us as leaders, they misquote us. Never said that. <coughs> now, what I like about Orthodox Christianity is they believe that Christianity is a journey. And we're not yet there. So Brother Ignatius will get up and pray every morning. I went to an old priory in Northumberland. And these monks used to sleep in their cell with an open coffin in their cell. How morbid can you be? And every day they used to go and they used to get a little shovel and just dig a little bit out of a grave. Oh, how morbid can you be? And do you know what they did, those two things? To remind them they were mortal and that they were not the major event. They were there to serve Christ. <coughs> do you know what Jesus said? Blows away the question, can you lose your salvation? Ever been asked that question as a leader? Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me, can you leave, lose your salvation? And if you're one part of Christianity, ah, you can, Larry. <laughs> if you don't taste of the church, <laughs> I'm telling you now, and if you don't turn up to the services and break bread, ah, you're going to burn in hell. <laughs> and that's for sure, because I've had a word with God himself and the Holy Spirit will consume you. <laughs> but if you're from the other side of theology, I'm telling you now, stop the film, stop the film, once saved, already saved, and we're having no more of this now. And so we debate. <laughs> Fantastic. We're having no Catholics in this place now. <laughs> Do you know what Jesus said? You know what Jesus said a Christian is? This might upset some of you. He said this. Are you ready for this? This will be a revelation for some of us. He who endures to the end is saved. When's the last time you preached that? He who endures to the end is saved. When I married my wife, I made a vow. <coughs> Till death, I should part. Now, I can't guarantee the fidelity of my wife, only of myself. And I told my wife this, and she didn't understand it for many years. 
I do not love you. You're not the number one love in my life. You never will be. And she looked at me. I said, the only way we will guarantee that I'll be faithful to you until we die is if God is my number one love. Because I have to offend him before you. I have to cheat on him before I cheat on you. And I wish a few priests and pastors and elders would listen to this. I've got to break his heart before I break yours. And I'm not prepared to do it, so I'll stay with you through thick and thin. And for the first two years of our marriage, marrying a beautiful looking woman at 25, I didn't love her. We suddenly realised we didn't love each other. But I knew there was destiny on my life and I knew if I walked away from my wife, my destiny in those days would go with me. I couldn't be divorced three or four times and keep coming back because God needed my ministry. So here I am being married and I don't love the woman. And I'm not being crude, but if you don't love a 25-year-old gorgeous-looking woman, you ain't going to love her when she's 65. But I've made a vow. I will love you until we die. If my wife ran off with another man, I'm free from that covenant because she's gone off. I can only be sure of my own covenant. Same with Christ. You can't blame other people for causing you to fall back. Oh, well, you see the church I went, you can see the leaders I've had. And I was hurt in my last church as a leader. No, don't you give me this. You've made the covenant to God and nobody can take it off you. You give it away. Nobody can take it off you. What can man do to me? You ran well, but who hindered you? So before any, any manuals on marriage, because in our days you didn't have any marriage training, my wife was here and I was there. We had nothing in common. Except one thing, Christ. And as we got closer to him, guess what happened? <coughs> After two years, I fell in love with my wife. Been married 43 years in August. And in football and in the ministry, I've had opportunities to have affairs with umpteen women. Am I speaking proper language today? You see, if my wife... <clears throat> been married for 43 years with me and I went to her after 41 years and said love it's 41 years a long time yeah do you mind if I have a year off because <laughs> a woman in the church she's half your age <sighs> right she's going to give me a heart attack I'll tell you this now my wife said that's alright love you've done 41 years just go and have a year off and come back hello if I commit adultery I've broken a covenant to set up another one because sex is a covenant so that covenant is now finished. So why would I think that I can have time out from God and then come back when I've made a covenant? So Jesus said, he that endures to the end is saved because it's a journey. Is your marriage good after 43 years? Not always. We go through bad times. Then Jesus said something else. Well, she wouldn't say these things. He who overcomes, I will give him the access to the tree of life which is in the paradise of my father. He will eat of the tree. If you overcome, you will have the tree that seals your eternity. That's what he said. Jew to the end, 
overcome. Paul picks this up and says, I have finished the race. I have fought the good fight. So there is laid up for me. So where do we get this instant salvation from? That says to everybody, that's it, right? You're okay now. You're all Christians. God bless. Off you go now. Go play poker. (laughs) Everything you need was in that one prayer. No, the journey, the baby was born. What about the pediatrician now? What about the elementary teacher? What about the senior teacher? What about the college teacher? What about the apprenticeship? See, go make disciples. Make means fashion. Disciple means learner, disciplined learner. It doesn't look so good on our returns every year. But we may have more hearts in heaven than bums on seat if we actually had a well-being mentality. A baby is for life, not just for Christmas. And those of us who have children, Bishop, who's 21, find that as they get older, they get more expensive. When they're married. When my one daughter phones me, hi dad, I go, how much I'm busy at the moment in a meeting. (laughs) Oh dad, look, get it over with. How much do you want to borrow? Why do you always say that to me, Dad? Because that's why you phone me with that tone of voice. Quick, love, I've got a meeting. How much? Well, it's only 250 pounds. I'll give it you back. I say, yes, when I'm dead. (laughs) Just ask for it. It's not a loan. I'll give it you. They don't get any better, Bishop. You've got them for life. And then when you think you've cracked it, the grandchildren come and they want pocket money. I just took my one granddaughter to Disneyland. It cost me a fortune. And I got three more. This is totally different to the last two days, isn't it? Is that okay? Well-being. Now Jesus extends it. So if we need to bring our body and our mind and our body and our soul into that redemptive state... And isn't it wonderful when I can talk to mentally ill people and when I've done the rundown on them. Do you know, two-thirds of you are your parents' DNA. That's who you are. Because if you've never seen your parents, if you hadn't seen your parents and you met them next, next week, you'd have the same smile. You'd either be bald because they're bald. You'd either keep your hair because they kept the hair. Now, the charismatics call it generational curse, but you could call it hereditary. If they got heart trouble, you got heart trouble. They had cancer, you got cancer. Because it's in the breeding. Not necessarily a demon, it's in the breeding. Hello, when the Jews used to intermarry, they all had bad eyes. So a lot of Jews used to wear pebble glasses because it was bad breeding. It wasn't the demon of short sightedness. <laughs> so I don't care if you call it a genetic curse or a generational curse. So when I interview people, I work with doctors and consultants. I say, give me your family history first. Has your father died of heart trouble? Yeah, mother, she's got a heart trouble. Yes, your brother, he's died of a heart attack. Right, so this heart trouble isn't a demon, it's bad breathing. So you don't need deliverance, you need healing. Okay, let's talk about healing. I do that with mental illness. Hear voices. I've got three consultant psychiatrists in my church and they'll agree with me. Never, if you're a Christian, go to a psychiatrist and tell him you hear from God. That's fatal. That's called schizophrenia with a crucifix around it. 
You always say my faith sustains me in my illness. <laughs> I'm telling you too. So cultures will tell you, any voice is schizophrenia. They start from there. They don't understand because psychology and psychiatry is the study of human nature, it's humanism. So you now never say you hear voices. So I always go around with mental ill people on their well-being and I say, okay, so there's a genetic failure in the family there. Let's pray for you to be healed. I've had spirit-filled Christians cry over me and say, this is the only church that's not trying to deliver me. They're so grateful they're sick. They're not demonic. What an insult to say to a man who loves Jesus, you've got demons in you. Because the Bible says, how can good and bad be in the same tree? You cannot take the cup of God and the cup of wrath. I'm not being rude. Some of you leaders have never seen a demon. If you did, I say this not crudely, you'd wet yourself. Have you actually seen people rise off the floor and move around the walls without feet on the ground? Have you seen people, girls, pick up two men in their arms and throw them? We have people who feel a bit depressed and say they're demonic. You must never say that. Most of them need tender loving care, a good bit of prayer, and a bit of encouragement. And a lot of healing. You'll soon know if a person's demonic, they won't better sit in your church. If you've got the power of the Holy Ghost in your church, they won't better sit there. They'll have to run out, snarling, barking, do what they like. Boom, straight out. They'll panic, just like I used to be in the dark. <gasps> Can't stop there. I've walked into buildings as a clergyman, senior clergyman. I went around an old people's home. They said, and there we are, Reverend. I said, yeah, this guy's eating his meal. Old man, he goes, Everybody went back. I said, don't worry. It's not the dinner. It's a demon. <laughs> you know, because it could have been. It was a bad potato or something. Yeah? <laughs> I just said, shut up and come out of the man. <laughs> I said, all right, you're all right now. <laughs> See, there's the difference of well-being. Mind, body, soul, and spirit. Went into an Anglican church in, 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 in Nottingham. The vicar just said, I'd love you to come past if you pass one day. And I, I just walked in. and He was doing a deliverance of a woman on the floor. She was right at the front there. As I walk in these lovely Anglican buildings, he went, hello, 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 hello. I said, I'm all right, 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 right. thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Old building. <laughs> and this woman's lying on the floor, unconscious, and she speaks in a man's voice. What are you doing here, David Carr? You rule solely whole. You have no authority in Nottingham. Shut up, 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 and come out, 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 out. The great thing about these old buildings is, when you command something, it keeps going. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, 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 Jesus. <laughs> hey! It's like a machine gun. It is in the Bishop in the Anglican church is like a machine gun. Hey, man, Jesus, 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 Jesus. It's fantastic. Demons are going, ah, 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 ah. It's wonderful. <laughs> One more thing. So if there's well-being with us, Coming from a background of very much evangelical evangelism, Holy Spirit, again, in my quiet time, said to me, David, if only you preached the gospel, it would be wonderful. And I said, Lord, you can pull anything on me, but I personally led 2,000 people to the Lord before I, became, before I came into the ministry. In one year, I led 2,200 people to the Lord. Everybody I talked to was just unbelievable. My brother, who's a theologian, used to get very, very upset with God. He used to say, you know, he speaks like this, you know. My name's Connor. 
got all his doctorates and my name's Carl. <laughs> Studies the Greek and the Hebrew and <laughs> dissects everything when he preaches, you know. And he said once to somebody, you know, it's unfair, you know, I study a whole week. Go through the Pauline epistles to get a message for the people. Mm. My brother will walk into a church and on the way and he'll pick up a banana and he'll unpeel it in front of the people and they all sob and give their lives to Christ. <laughs> he said, if he gives the weather forecast, people will repent. <laughs> he really had a problem with God over this. Yeah. I would, I'd just walk in and go, what am I going to preach on today? Oh, give me that, give me that banana. See, how do you find that life is all full of layers that we need to strip off before we can get to the real man. <laughs> and find some of you have been bruised in the process. Let's take that out. People years later being saved through that, they're still saved. I was at the Peterborough Church, Dave Smith. Yeah. I preached there for him, the place was packed. Then who wants to commit their life to Christ? It's got a lifetime. This is only the beginning of the great life. Oh, too many to come out. So I said, I want you to pray this prayer with me. Mm. He tells everybody this one. This is great. And they're still saved, these people. Mm. I said, I want you to pray this with me. I thought, oh, God, I feel a good prayer coming on me. <laughs> this is, must be from the common book of prayer. Or, you know, some things are a bit common, but that was okay. I said, I want you to pray this. Oh, God. Went, oh, God. Lord. I want to walk like you, talk like you. <laughs> I want to be like you. <laughs> and they're all praying this prayer, and I'll go, I do be, do be, do be. I said, that's from the Jungle Book, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and they all went, yes. <laughs> and Dave says, they're still saved. <laughs> but they don't half love bananas. They <laughs> <laughs> do. Some of them worship like this, man. It's not that. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was you should do that. <laughs> I want to walk like you, talk like you. A doobie doobie doo doo. I'm sitting in my office again. The Lord says, Read Matthew 25. And I will take the nations and I'll put them to the left and to the right. Goats and sheep. Because I was hungry, you never fed me. Naked, you never clothed me. Thirsty, you never gave me a drink. I was sick, you never visited me. I was in prison, you never came to me. When did we never see you do that? When did we ever see you do that? This is not an issue to do with social action. It's an issue on faith. Because God is saying that if you really have faith... You will be doing these things. And the reason they asked that question was they hadn't got his image in their life. Because when Jesus saw a big crowd, he said, feed them. The disciples said, send them away. When Jesus saw the children, he said, come unto me. And the children said, forbid them and get rid of them. When Jesus did a 5,000 and a 4,000 miracle, the disciples did not believe for their hearts were hardened. Have you ever read that? Yes. They did not believe the miracle. They had rejected the miracle. 
Because their hearts were not in tune. You see, before you can have compassion, you must have passion. And the reason why our hospitals are suffering is because the hospital authorities have kicked the life out of the staff and they've got no passion for their job anymore, so there's no compassion for the people. And I know a lot of leaders who haven't any compassion because there's no passion anymore. James picks this argument up and says, what do you want about? Works and faith. Surely faith produces works, but works do not produce faith. Show me your faith. I'll show you my works through faith. And so we split the church into those who are social and those who are spiritual. There is no spiritual or social. Christ never speaks of the thing being lay or professional. He doesn't speak about the thing being social or spiritual. In Christ, all is spiritual. So we do feed the poor. Do not make our church acceptable in our town. Talk about unity and oneness, the order. As a young Pentecostal, I went there and I was hideous. I came to a town that had never had a Pentecostal church in 800 years of history. And I went to put them all right. And the parish church, very well known, Anglo-Catholic, 800 in the congregation, declared war against me. I valiantly fought against them. And they put a huge slip out amongst five churches saying I was a heretic. Now, 300 years ago, that would have mean I'd have been burnt at the stake. Anybody who associated with me was publicly excommunicated from the Church of England. Do you know that? A lovely Methodist family who associated with me were publicly one Sunday morning, they were Methodist missionaries, excommunicated from the local Church of England publicly. They mixed with me. 41 years on now, if I go to any of their functions, the rector says to me, you will come in at the rear as a bishop, won't you? And anything they do, I get the bishop's privilege. What's changed? Well, we implemented Matthew 25 and started feeding the poor. By every person in our congregation being in one tin of food. The next thing we knew, as today, 23 churches in our town and over 20 odd schools all gathered together of all denominations to support us in feeding the poor. And in the words of the rector who came to see me, David, you've become a Methodist and you've become an Episcopate. All so that you can cross the road and knock my door. I've never opened the door. He made John Sentimut our church and then went back the next day. And at the Mass, with 800 business people there, they stood up and he went, Yesterday I went to a fantastic Catholic church. They genuflect better than we do. We just nod at the altar and they bow when they sing. They're lovely people. And we've entered into brotherhood with them. And you're asking yourself, where is this wonderful Catholic church that I've been to? It's called the Renewal Christian Centre, the Methodist Church down the road. From now on, they're our brothers. And the people started to applaud as I said the same thing at our church. And the people started to applaud. And the two major churches in the town came together, theologically not always the same. 
but in heart one person. Because we learned to feed the poor, clothe the naked, visit those who are homeless. Paul picks this up, put the widows in family and orphans. Because in Christ's eyes, there is not the secular and the spiritual. There is only the spiritual. And this is what the order is trying to do. It comes from a man called St. Leonard, and with this I'll finish. St. Leonard. Why St. Leonard? Nobody's heard of him. He's not an English saint, he's never been to England. And why name it after a saint? Well, it's quite simple, took over an abbey. Which one does? I quite an abbey. I got a toaster, so I thought I'll have an abbey this time, isn't it? <laughs> and it was called St. Leonard's. And the Anglicans found me up one day from America and said, we've been, we've been looking for somebody in authority who could speak for us to either York or Canterbury because we broke off from the communion through homosexuality. And we, we can't follow the, the American church anymore. And so we've we formed a communion and we want representation in England. And they tell me that you, you are an honorary bishop of the Church of England. And I said, well, yeah, it's a bit embarrassing, but... Yeah, when I go to the functions, I have to sit with all the bishops and all that, yeah. But I'm not really an Anglican bishop. I'm a Methodist. I'm an overseer. Anyway, they, they talked and prayed, and they said, there's no such thing as an honorary bishop. You're a bishop or you're not. And I, yeah, well, I said, it's just titles. They said, no, no, no. Do you have anything that is not Methodist? I said, well, I've got this abbey, St. Leonard's. Anyway, they come across, they consecrated me as, as a presbyter. They came back a month later and made me a bishop with the smallest parish in the world. I've only got three acres. I've got a diocese of three acres. <laughs> it's wonderful, really. I've got a cathedral and a little, little diocese. And they said to me, because of your ecumenical love and what God has told you to open up our wells, why don't you start an order? Because the order is a lifestyle. And they commissioned me to be the abbot of the order. And when we looked up St. Leonard, who he meant, because he knew who he was, isn't it interesting? Open up our wells. He gave up a lucrative living in the year 500 to become a cleric, I gave up pro football. He was ordained the same day as his brother, so was I. He had a passion to pray for the sick, so do I. He had a ministry to prisoners, he is the patron saint of prisoners. And we write to 700 prisoners. He had job creation for the poor and fed them, so do we. And he preached strong doctrine, and so do I. And we're just bringing back the wells of yesterday so that today we can work together so here's my final word is it well with your soul it is well with my soul and you're on a journey and, and we're not perfect and some of our idiosyncrasies will stay with us all our life that makes you you being stupid is some of the best things you can always be because people don't blame you for it because they know you're chapter as a book. I act silly like this because when the time comes that it's an illness, they won't know there's any difference. Great talking. And I'll close, close, close with this final illustration now. I went the other week to an Alzheimer's home, which can be very sad. But they wanted me to go and look round it, and so it's just to me, it's just incredible. I just, there, and I got my chain on, and my cross, and my proper shirt, and 
They said, this is Bishop David, he's come to see you, and they're all different degrees, and I sat there and had me dinner with them, and talk about the old days, they're with you, you know, yeah. laughing about it, you know, great, good time, and one woman says, you're married? And I went, why, do you fancy me? She said, I do. <laughs> I said, well, I'm married, so keep your eyes off me. Five minutes later, are you married? Oh, strike, yes, I am, yeah. <laughs> so they had an entertainer there that paid £200, and halfway through he came to me and said, excuse me, can I use your script? You're funnier than I am. <laughs> and this old lady said, yes, he is funnier than you. <laughs> <laughs> but he, here's a good one for you. She said to me, are you really a bishop? I said, yeah, I am, yeah. yeah. Bit unconventional, but yes, I am. She said, all right then, who's this? And she said, Saint somebody like, you know, Ingleberg Humperdinck or something, you know. <laughs> And I said, I don't know. You're not a real bishop. And if you're a bishop, you know all the saints. I said, there's thousands of them. And I could have forgotten anyway. Tell me. No one, tell you. I said, go on, tell me who it is. No one, tell you. If you're a bishop, you'd know. I don't know. I could have forgotten. Yeah. Who is this saint? She said, it's the patron saint of Alzheimer's. I said, no wonder I've forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> left you on a spiritual note. <laughs> As we come to lunch now, and you're going to tell us what to do, that we've got a wonderful um, pack for you to tell you what the order's all about. I hope I haven't put you off. You're going to join when you heard him. He'll bring you back. He'll pull you back into sanity. And that's not what I've said the last two days. I've been very serious the last two days, but I just thought, you know, today, God just sort of said, come on, be a bit more lighthearted. Okay? God bless you. Thank you.